morning to Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 15, 16, and 17. Thanks, Jack. Colossians chapter 3, verses 15, 16, and 17. Paul is writing, and this is what he has to say. He says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. There's a um, growing sense today that people have lost hope in the church. In a book entitled uh, Rethinking the Church, for example, there's a pastor down south. His name is James Emery White. He's pastor of the Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. They did a survey of their community, and they discovered uh, a list of eight reasons why people have given for not going to church. You can see the list as we uh, put that up here. The very top of the list is uh, 74% just said there's no value in attending. You can see some of the others, too many problems, don't have time, ask much too much for money, services are boring, and so on. The bottom of the list, and this one kind of surprised me. I don't know if it surprises you. Only 12% of people say they don't uh, go to church because they don't believe in God or unsure He exists. The primary reason they give is that they just see there's no value in attending. Even people who attend church, White discovered, uh, they're often frustrated with the churches they attend. As one woman stated, same survey, I go to church because I feel like I have to, not because I want to. To tell you the truth, she says, it's never really been a positive, meaningful experience for me. In 1997, uh, George Barna, the researcher, did a survey, and interestingly, he discovered, now listen, this is a really significant finding. He discovered that two-thirds of the people who attend church at least monthly, two-thirds of those people, say they have never experienced God in a worship service. Comes no surprise then that uh, authors like Neil Cole sum up the feeling many people have about the church pretty negatively. Neil Cole, for example, has written, When you look at the conventional church in America and all it offers, you're left gazing down an old, soggy street. It doesn't compel you to go further down that street. More vision statements, more Christian concerts, more blueprints for bigger auditoriums. There aren't enough. There's something better. There has to be. Surely Jesus didn't raise from the dead just so we could have better church bulletins and more comfortable pews. Now I think Cole's statement, his complaint, is overstated a bit. I think he tends to throw out the baby with the bathwater. But you see what he's getting at. You hear the sense of frustration does raise an important question, doesn't it? What's the point? What's the point of this thing we call church? 
a number of years ago uh, when I was taking a course on psychology, I was introduced to a German word. I love the German language. It's got that sort of guttural feel. The, the word I learned was this word gestalt. Isn't that a neat word? you want to say that word with me? Gestalt. Basically, a gestalt just means a form or a shape. But in the 20th century, the early part of that century, a group of people got together and said, you know, that's a theory of how the mind works, the gestalt theory. They said that mind tends to make sense of the world by seeing things not in parts, but as a whole. Think something like a global construct or big picture view of, of things. Let me show you a, a slide here to give you an example of how Gestalt theory works. Now, when you look at one side of this picture, you can see that your mind wants to put together the image of a duck. Do you see the duck there? If you look at it in just one particular way. Now, in the same sense, if you focus on another side of that picture, the mind wants to tell you, no, this is a, a rabbit. That's how Gestalt theory works, that a mind tends to want to see things with a big picture overview. We're not satisfied to see both, are we? We want to see one or the other. Well, our passage today is an illustration of how this, this works. To grasp what, he, what Colossians chapter 3, verses 15, 16, and 17 is trying to say to us, it's necessary for us to grab the big picture view, the gestalt view. And so let me make three big picture observations. And I don't know if you mark your Bible, but in my Bible, I notice three things here. In, in verse 15 of chapter 3, notice that phrase, let the peace of Christ rule. Notice the phrase, peace of Christ. That's really emphasis. That's really an interesting emphasis. Verse 16, second phrase that kind of gives us a big picture overview of what this passage is about. See it there in verse 16. Let the word of Christ. And then down in verse 17, right about the middle of the, uh, of the phrase, it says, And do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we could almost say, in the name of Christ. So the topic is Jesus. Does that come through clearly to us? The topic is Jesus here. It's the peace of Jesus. Let it rule. Let it act as umpire, it literally says. The word of Christ, let it dwell richly. You know, let it just be filling your, your, your lives as a church, as a congregation. You should practice the rational side, teaching and admonishing. You should practice the emotional side, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The whole balanced thing here, well, you know, let the word of Christ dwell in your congregation richly. Do it all. And the name of Christ, well, that's the thing that brings all to unity. I'd like to suggest to you that the peace of Christ is like those things we do. The word of Christ, well, those those things we think. And so when Paul is saying in verse 17, whatever you do or say or think, do it all in the name of Christ, it's all bringing it together. And the, and, and the gestalt point is just simply this. The subject is Jesus. The pieces of the Christian life only come together. They only make sense when they're grounded in and focused on Him. That's really an important point. That's a really important point. Now, there's a second thing that I see in this passage. See that phrase there again in verse 17, In the name of the Lord Jesus, something unique happens in the Bible. We see this most clearly in a passage like Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. 
the name of Jesus is a parallel statement for what we would call the glory of God or the glory of Christ. See Isaiah 42, 8. It says, I am the Lord. That is my name. And you could almost read the second part of the verse. I won't share my name with anybody else. I won't share my glory. Name, glory. Glory, name. They're synonyms. By the way, that's why it's such a fascinating thing in uh, the Great Commission. In Matthew, where we're told to baptize in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One of the reasons Christians believe in the Trinity is that we believe that God won't share His name with anyone less than Himself. So the Father must be God, the Son must be God, the Spirit must be God. They all three share the equal name because God won't share His name with anyone less than Himself. Do you see that argument there? So the phrase here is really a high claim. Jesus shares in the name and in the glory of God. So, big picture, whatever else Christianity is, it's about the name of Jesus. It's about the glory of Christ. It's about bringing glory to Him. It's His reputation, not just my interests that are at stake. Now, there's a third big picture observation I think we need to make just to catch a picture of what this whole thing is about. Notice there in the phrase, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as the members of one body. That means this is a corporate expression of the of the Christian life. In chapter 3, verse 1, as Rick's been making his way through this passage, there's more of an individual emphasis. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Colossians says, since you have been raised with Christ, that is, you and me as individuals. Down in chapter 3, verse 18, he's going to turn his subject matter to the Christian family. He's going to talk about wives and husbands and children and fathers. There's going to be a family emphasis down there. But right here in this middle section, to get the big picture view, we're not talking about individuals and we're not talking about Christian families. We're talking about us. We're talking about the body of Christ. We're talking about the church to which we belong. Not the invisible body that nobody can see that we're all a part of, that's real, but that visible, tangible thing that we belong to, that we attend, that we go to, that we can sing in, that we can connect with one another, that's this passage. So the interpretive gestalt, that big picture thing that's happening here, is about living responsibly as the people or the community that bears Jesus' name. It's about glorifying Him. It's an answer to that question. What's the purpose of the church? The purpose of the church is to bring glory to Christ. It only makes sense with Him. I think then, if that's the background, when we take a look at what Paul is doing in the passage, he does really four significant things here. I think he gives us four steps four ways of glorifying Christ through this thing we call the church. Would you look at them just real quickly with me? In verse 15, I want to focus again on that little clause there, as members of one body. Now, the word members isn't actually in the Greek part of the text. It's a translation to help us get the point. But it is the idea of belonging, of 
connecting, of relating. And so the first thing I think we ought to note is that one way we glorify Christ is by becoming a part of the visible, tangible, earthly expression of the body is simply by joining the local church. Simply by joining a local church. Preparation for our quarterly business meeting uh, that we held last month, the elders were doing some new member interviews. We had a number of these uh, to complete, and so there were so many, the elders actually divided into several groups, and we spread those interviews out over a couple of weeks to get them accomplished. I was in uh, Jack Lundberg's group. He's the chairman of our board. And uh, one of the comments that I consistently heard Jack make at the beginning of each of our interviews with new members was this. He would say, we are a believer's church. And so we'd like to hear your story. How did you come to know Jesus as your personal Savior? And I thought, that's, that, that's interesting. What is there about the story we have to tell that's related to being uh, the church of Jesus Christ and bringing glory to Him? And it suddenly became clear to me as I heard some of those stories and was thinking about this passage that was coming. You know, you can't tell your story. You cannot tell the story of how you became a Christian without exalting Christ, without lifting Him up, without giving the glory to Him. Let me just give you a couple of quick examples from, from the New Testament. You'll be familiar with these. And so, because we're so familiar with them, I, I've pulled them out of a modern translation, The Message. The first one is Luke chapter 18. You don't need to turn there. Let me just tell you, the, read you the story. Jesus says, two men went to pray. One stood before the Lord and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, you know, robbers and evildoers and adulterers. No, I'm pretty good. I fast twice a week. I give 10% of all I get, and can't you almost hear him say, that's gross, Lord, not net? Meanwhile, Jesus says on the other side, there was another man who was slumped in the shadows, and he hid his face, and he wouldn't even look up into heaven, and he beat his chest, and he would only say, Oh, God, oh, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Now let me ask you, which of those two people belong in a believer's church? Which of those two people make sense of the church? Jesus said, I'll tell you, it wasn't the first man. It was the second one that went down justified. You see what I'm saying? One way. It's, it's sort of like in a believer's church. By telling our story, we're joining with other people. And with those other people, we become connected. It's, it's a symbol. It's a sign. It's almost like the tattoo that makes us a Christian. We, we can only get in by glorifying Him. And when we get in, we glorify Him. One more example real quickly. It's in 1 Corinthians one twenty six from the same translation. Take a look. Take a look, brothers and sisters at what we were before we came to Christ. I don't see many of the brightest and best among you. Do you? Now, 
he doesn't say, I don't see any. He says, I don't see many. I don't see many of the brightest and best among you. Do you? I don't see many influential. I don't see many from high society families. Doesn't that make it clear that God deliberately chooses men and women that the world overlooks? The zeros, the nobodies, the nothings, as we would say, the lost, to expose the hollow pretensions of the world. Everything we have, he says, I don't care if it's right doctrine, I don't care if it's the right way we live, whether it's a clean slate that we've started from or a new, fresh beginning, it all comes from God by way of Jesus. That's why we Christians have this saying, he says. If you're going to blow your horn, don't toot it for yourself. Blow your trumpet for God. You know, we could look at other examples, but you get the idea. One of the ways of giving glory to Christ is by acknowledging who we are and that we need Christ's salvation. And membership in a believer's church, in a church like ours, is designed to demonstrate that. It's a way of bringing glory to God. So there's the first point. Humble ourselves, exalt God, publicly identify with His church, just get in. Now there's a second thing Paul says in this passage, a second way of bringing glory to Christ. It's in verse 15 again. And it's in that phrase about the last part of verse 15, you were called to peace. Now notice we've seen that word peace twice. Now when we see that word, we're a psychological psychological society, and we tend to think it's referring to inner peace. It's referring to the peace of, of God that I have in my heart. But in this particular passage, there are references in the New Testament to that peace, but in this passage it's referring to the Old Testament concept of shalom, Shalom. Remember when Pastor Rick was giving us the communion elements, he says there's a future time that's coming when the world will be reconciled to God, will be reconciled to one another, will experience shalom, will experience all the good things that God wants us to have, will experience all the goodness that comes from Him. Well, that's what this word is translating here. It's the idea of shalom, and it says we're called to that. We're called to be reconciled with one another. We're called to be connected with one another. We're to let that peace even act as umpire. If we have problems with one another, the way we solve the problems is let the peace of the body of Christ be the umpire. We do things for the glory of Christ in the church. I illustrate this with kind of a comic type of illustration first to begin with. Behold, a parable. At first, Cinders was glad to be part of the fire. He knew the house was cozy and warm because he and the other coals made it that way. Together they boiled the water and they cooked the stew and they added beauty to the night. House's master was pleased and Cinders felt productive. But Cinders got restless. The master of the house, you see, had this annoying habit of poking at the coals to make them burn brighter and make them burn hotter. What made matters worse is that the other coals surrounding him, well, they were a mixed lot, to say the least. Some burned too hot. You've met them. 
Some burn too cold, you've met them too, and just some refuse to light at all. The coals on top of him, the coals he supported, well, they were often too heavy, and they tended to dump ashes all over him. The coals beneath him, well, they were constantly complaining that he was the one to blame. So eventually, cinders had had enough. I'm getting out of here, he said. He burned hotter, hotter, and hotter. He ended out on the edge of the hearth. I'm free, he thought. But almost immediately he started to cool and die. And lacking strength to do anything else, Cinders just lay there. He was miserable. He was helpless. He was unproductive. And then the master of the house appeared. What are you doing out here all by yourself, Cinders? Don't you know that you're no good to anybody? Not even to yourself, not to me, when you're out here burning alone. And with that, the master flipped cinders back into the fire, and the coals cried out, Welcome home, cinders. We weren't as good a fire without you. And cinders replied, It's good to be back. I'm not a fire at all without you. It's cute, isn't it? Now let me tell you how this really works. Last week uh, in our Crossroads ABF, we had three guests from the Union Gospel Mission. And one of the men who told their story, the story of their journey, was named Alex. Alex was, and I emphasize that, Alex was a history teacher and a coach. And he lived in Egan, Minnesota with his wife and, to use his term, three lovely daughters. I say was because Alex is an alcoholic, and five years ago, Alex's world collapsed. He lost everything. Lost his job, lost his reputation, lost his wife, lost his daughters. And he found himself, in all places, in a park in Egan, alone, by himself. Eventually having nowhere else to go, he made his way to the Union Gospel Mission. And one of the first men he was introduced there in the mission was another person similar to himself. And when he was introduced, the fellow said, you really, you really need to be here. This is a good place for you to be. And Alex thought to himself, he said, I knew that line. I'd been in rehab before, you see. I'd been there at least seven times in the past. And You know, you have to say things like that. I had said things like that to other people that were introduced to me. It's the game. It's what keeps them from throwing you back out on the street. It doesn't really mean anything. That night, Alex attended what he called the Wednesday night gathering. It was a simple format. They pray. They sang a little bit. They listened to a message, and then the men in the room started to share their story. But Alex said something was different this time. And I'm quoting. He says, I knew it was real. I saw for the first time in that group Christ among brothers who know because they've been where I am. And together they had found the way out. And it gave me hope. And that night Alex's life changed. He still has a long way to go. 
But he summarized his journey like this. He says, in the park, I didn't want to live, but I was afraid to die. Now, I want to live, but I'm not afraid to die. A second way, I think, to bring glory to God through the church is just simply to huddle up with God's people and be real. And that brings me to a third point real quickly. Now, this one... I could have approached it in one of two ways. The way the Protestant reformers approached it was to take a look at this passage and compare it with a sister passage in Ephesians. This passage says, Let Christ's word dwell in you. And then it says, Teaching one another uh, with singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart and doing it all in the name of the Lord. The Ephesians 5.18 passage talks about being filled with the Spirit. But notice it says almost exactly the same things. It says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody in your heart and giving thanks to the Lord. And, and in everything you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Parallel passages. The Protestant reformers saw that and they said, you know what? It's wrong then. It's wrong to separate the life of the Spirit from the Word. The Word and the Spirit belong together. The Word-filled life will always be the Spirit-filled life. The Spirit-filled life will always be the Word-filled life. If you pull them apart, if you just emphasize the Spirit, you don't have it right. If you just emphasize the Word, you don't have it right. They belong together. That's an important point. But it's not the point I want to focus on. When I look at this, I think, my goodness, look how interested he is about the internal workings of the church. Things like singing hymns and things like admonishing one another and things like teaching one another. It seems to me that Paul is pretty interested in what's going on inside a local church. And, and my question is, with all the stuff going on in the world, why in the world is he so focused on what's going on in the church? Isn't that a little bit like fiddling while Rome burns? Um, there's a man whose name is Craig Van Gelder, and he's written a book called The Essence of the Church, and he says he thinks he can explain what's going on by a simple, simple illustration of... Well, how many of you know what a demonstration plot is? I didn't grow up in a rural community, so I, I didn't understand the demonstration plot. Van Gelder grew up uh, in rural Iowa, and in rural Iowa, uh, especially when he was growing up, they, they, the counties intent, uh, 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 tended to uh, employ people that were called extension agents. And the job of an extension agent was to learn new techniques or to introduce new grain or new farming methods to farmers who were sometimes resistant to change. And so what they would do in order to get the farmers to buy in, they would plant a pot of ground, a demonstration plot, and they would use that new technique or they would use that new seed and the farmers would stand during the year and they would watch to see how the grain grew. And at the end of the year, if that grain turned out better than their grain, then they tended to be more open to move to the new technique or the new grain or the new whatever, demonstration plot. According to Van Gelder, the church is like that. He says the church is God's demonstration plot in the world. Its very existence demonstrates that His redemptive reign has already begun here and now. 
Its very presence in this world invites the world to watch, to listen, to examine, to consider the possibility of accepting God's redemptive reign in their life as a superior way of living. Now, some of you have studied the Old Testament. You say, we didn't need to do the redemptive reign. It's basically just first fruits, isn't it? That's the whole idea of first fruits in the Old Testament. The first part of the flock before the or first fruit of the flock or the or the uh, uh, the grain was waved before the Lord as a sign, as a picture, of all the good stuff, the kingdom stuff, the stuff we look forward to. That's about to come. That's what churches are supposed to be like. So one of the ways of glorifying God the church. It's just simply by showing the world that we can do it. We attend to the inner life by giving them something to look at, something to see, something to observe. And that brings me to the fourth point. I'm going to call it fill the cart, but that won't mean a whole lot of to you until I explain to you what's going on. I'll tell you an illustration about a man named is Ralph Kuyper. Ralph Kuyper was one time a professor at Conservative Baptist Seminary in Denver, Colorado. And Kuiper was born with really, really bad eyesight. It was sort of his um, thorn in the flesh. And he would pray, Lord, take away, take away this problem. Take away this thorn. And one day while he's having devotions, and you know the process. You know how it goes on. You begin to kind of argue with God in your mind. He began to feel that the Holy Spirit was dealing with him on this. And he could almost hear the voice of the Spirit saying to him, Kuiper... Being the good Presbyterian he he was, he knew the Holy Spirit would speak in terms of the Westminster Confession. So, Kuiper, what is the chief end of man? Kuiper, who had studied the Westminster Confession, I mean, he taught at seminary for crying out loud, said, well, it's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And the Holy Spirit said back to him, is that your chief end? Kuiper said, well, of course it is. That's, that's why I live. And the Holy Spirit said back, well then, which would you rather have? Perfect eyesight or the privilege of glorifying me? And Kuiper says, I had to pause on that one. And then he finally responded, I want to glorify you, Lord. You remember the, there used to be this thing. I know I was younger. Some of you, you remember this when they used to, in order to advertise a store, they would have a contest. And they would have two people go into a store with an empty shopping cart. And you were allowed just to go up and down the aisle in a limited time frame and fill your cart. And whoever got their cart the fullest with the most stuff won. It was a crazy way to advertise, I know, but it kind of worked. You know, I kind of think the Christian life is like that. I think each of us have been given different capacities, different size shopping cart. I think we have a limited time frame. Some of us live longer. Some of us live shorter. I think we've been placed in unique circumstances. Some of us are successful. Some of us not so successful. Some of us have problems. Some of us seem to have more joys. God has outlined all those things. And He has said to every one of us, don't look at what anybody else is doing. You just run up and down the aisles of this life and you fill that cart by glorifying Me whatever comes your way. I think that's a part of what's going on in this passage. I think Paul says, in fact, he does say, whatever you do, 
whatever you do, do it all in the name slash for the glory of Jesus Christ. Legend has it that uh, Goodson Borglum, now I don't know if I'm pronouncing that name right. Some of you people will correct me afterwards, but you recognize him. He's the man that spent 14 years blasting the faces of four American presidents into the side of Mount Rushmore. He was approached by a fellow sculptor for an evaluation of his work. This other sculptor had used a magnifying glass and rather than dynamite had painstakingly carved this tiny little figurine out of sliver of ivory and it was no bigger than a pin. And he said, well, what do you think? Borglum was kind to the mini sculptor, but he was later overheard to say, men are excited by bigness. Little things only inspire little men. Calvin Miller, from whom I got this story, agrees. And he says, you can always tell the size of a person by the size of the matters that consume them. So my question is, is there anything big enough to fill our awesome potential as human beings? Well, part of the answer. Part of the answer is in our passage today. According to Colossians chapter 3, verses 15, 16, and 17, living together for the glory of the church in Christ. That's a way. That's a way of fulfilling our potential. And how do we do that? Well, we do it by becoming Christians and by identifying with other believers. We do it by uh, maintaining the unity of the body of Christ. We do it by showing the world the difference Christ makes when we live together in unity and harmony. Give them a taste of something else. We do it by doing everything, everything we do, in the name of the glory of Christ. I think that's a pretty pretty cool passage. I think that's a great message. Would you bow with me this morning as we close in a word of prayer? Lord, the challenge in our passage today is to let your peace be the umpire in our church. So let your word dwell richly in our midst. So let concern for your name determine everything that we do. For some of us, that translates into an invitation to get in to huddle up. For others, it involves a renewed commitment just to living out your word in this world. But for all of us, it means capturing as much as we can of what this life offers for the glory of Christ and nothing else. Help us, Lord. Help us to do what you ask. In 